Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for joining us today for a panel on constitutional reform entitled The Future of British Government, Rewriting an Unwritten Constitution. Britain's constitution is based on precedence, convention and statutory law, some of which dates back to the Middle Ages, but most of which dates only from the turn of the 20th century. Britain's constitutional model has seen increasing scrutiny with the issues of electoral reform, the role of the House of Lords, and the nature of the office of Prime Minister gaining ever greater relevance. A string of constitutional crises, disproportionate electoral results, and changes in public opinion have raised serious questions about the United Kingdom's model of government. Is it finally time for serious constitutional change? Joining us today to discuss this are the Right Honourable Sir Vincent Cable, former leader of the Liberal Democrats, the Right Honourable Lord Jonathan Sumption KC, former Supreme Court Justice and medieval historian, and Professor John Curtis, a professor at Strathclyde University and, the UK, and one of the UK's leading sophologists. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming our panellists. So just as an overview of how this event's going to work, each of the panellists will start by making a, a brief opening statement about their views, particularly on electoral reform and House of Lords reform. Uh, and then we will um, move into a section where I ask questions to each of the panellists, and hopefully they ask questions to each other before we have a 20 to 25 minute Q&A session at the end uh, where you can ask your questions to our panellists. Um, I believe, Sir Vincent, you're going to start with opening remarks. Good. Well, <clears throat> Well, first, thank you for inviting me back. Um, I, I, as one of the, well, the only one of the three who uh, was an active politician, I think probably a, a useful place to start is to say that, you know, politicians do tend to regard constitutional issues as somewhat boring and second, uh, second division, um, ranking way behind issues like the cost of living and the NHS. But of course, it's the question of who decides on those issues and how they're dealt with is fundamentally a constitutional question. And my view would, is that our current constitutional arrangements, at least as they affect politics, are horribly dysfunctional. Um, and we may be getting to a point, as happened in 1906, 1945, 79, 97, and maybe 2019, uh, when we're ripe for a, a, a fundamental look at our sort of constitutional arrangements, particularly around Parliament. So I'll say a few words about the House of Lords and then a few words about uh, the electoral system for general elections. Uh, I, I mean, the House of Lords has, of course, adapted over time. It, there was a major change in the Blair era. A lot of the hereditaries disappeared. And the House of Lords is no longer a place which represents the views of the landed gentry, um, descendants of mistresses of former kings, uh, the Church of England, and some retired politicians. It's, it has modernized to some extent uh, by adopting more and more appointees. But there was a rather sort of brutal dismissal of the House of Lords by a uh, former Labour MP, which I rather cherish, which was who described it as a, 
an ermine-lined dustbin, an upmarket geriatric home with a slight smell of urine. Um, but the, the smells that I'm a bit more concerned about are the smells which arise from cronyism and corruption. And you're bound to get a certain amount of cronyism in any appointed system, but it has now become large-scale and endemic. And just as an illustration of what I mean, when I, when I was party leader, I, I went to a business dinner and was approached by a, a businessman who I don't think was particularly distinguished by any other factor of having had a lot of money. Uh, and he said to me, look, I, I gave the Conservative Party two million pounds and they haven't delivered their peerage. He said, I've never voted for your party, but can you do any better? <laughs> um, and I had to say I couldn't and wouldn't. Um, and I encouraged him to be patient because the Conservatives normally look after their friends and his peerage duly arrived. Uh, but unfortunately, that, the purchase of peerages, which is essentially what happens, and is theoretically a criminal offence but can never be demonstrated, um, has now become a key part of our constitutional arrangements. And is totally unsatisfactory on democratic and moral grounds. But the question is then, what do you do about it? Um, I, I now support the view which Gordon Brown expressed a few weeks ago that it's unreformable and it needs to be scrapped and replaced with another institution, assuming we want, don't want a unicameral system, uh, we do need a revising chamber, how, how should it be done? Um, I, 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 I do buy the argument that having another elected chamber just creates competition with the Commons and is not an ideal arrangement. Uh, having a system of appointments is always going to raise the question of who appoints the appointers. And I'm increasingly attracted to the idea of something radical, um, borrowing the, the principle that operates through the jury system of having people chosen by lots at random in a kind of large-scale citizens' assembly that can look at issues of legislation and typical issues at the moment would be something like assisted dying or the issues around asylum and human rights which raise legal issues but also raise deep moral issues in which the public can contribute, and Ireland demonstrated in its treatment of abortion legislation, that kind of mechanism can work extremely well, and I would apply it to the House of Lords. But the House of Lords problem is almost certainly secondary to the way in which the House of Commons is chosen and the form of government that comes out of it. Um, at the moment, the system we have, it's bad for voters, uh, it's bad for democracy and it's bad for governance. Uh, it's bad for voters because for the vast majority of people, their votes simply don't count. They have no agency, except in extraordinary political tsunamis like the 2015 election in Scotland. Uh, a, a substantial majority of seats are safe. They're not going to change. Uh, and if you happen to be a supporter of the 
losing candidate, or indeed of the winning candidate above a certain level, your votes have no additional meaning. And it isn't just your votes that don't count, your opinions don't count either, because if you have a safe seat in Parliament, why on earth would you worry about the opinions of the people who don't vote for you? You've got much more reason to be concerned about the opinions of your local party caucus, which can deselect you as well as select you. Um, you can get round these problems to a degree, it could acquire more agency, uh, by tactical voting, and many voters do that. I got into Parliament for 20 years on the back of tactical voting for Labour voters who didn't want to see a Conservative in Twickenham. And I, so I've used the system. But it, it does mean that people who use it, and an estimated one-third of voters use tactical voting, uh, they're voting not for the people they want, but for the people they dislike least. Uh, and all of that contributes to the undermining of a belief in democracy, um, particularly by younger people, large numbers of whom have seen what happens in the process and no longer think it's worth their while participating. But it's undemocratic also for a different reason, uh, which is that shades of organized opinion in political parties are not properly represented in Parliament. It takes 38,000 votes, certainly at the last election, to elect a Conservative, a bit less, actually, for a Scottish nationalist or an Ulster Unionist or a Sinn Féin. But to, to elect a Liberal Democrat took about 350,000 votes. To be a Green uh, took a million, or close to a million. It is wildly unrepresentative and means those shades of opinion are not represented in Parliament hardly at all. Um, or, or you could look at UKIP. I mean, we know UKIP, and we might agree with it, I don't, but a massively influential source of opinion, as it's shown in the referendum. Four million votes in 2015, not a single member of Parliament elected. So this is not a democratic process that we have at the moment. Uh, moreover, it contributes to bad governance. Uh, it's effectively a winner-take-all system. If you get one more vote than you need, one more MP to create a majority, basically you do what you like for five years. A bad system of government. I'm, I, I'm fortunate that I served as a cabinet minister in a different type of government, as a coalition. You were the only one we've had since the Second World War. In many ways, you may or may not agree with everything it did, but it was good government. Uh, we didn't pursue, or we went, didn't allow people to pursue extreme uh, experiments. Um, there was a lot of consensus. We had, from the outset, the largest mandate of any government in the post-war era in terms of the popular vote. Uh, a much better system of government than is normally the case. But coalitions occur and very rare, unusual circumstances under our first-past-the-post system. So, to conclude, how would I change it? We don't need to reinvent the wheel. Uh, we've got three or four different systems of voting operating in the UK at the moment. Scottish Parliament, Scottish Local Government, uh, London, other systems which we can see at first hand. Uh, and in the Blair era, an excellent 
piece of work was done by Lord Jenkins at Blair's request on how to design a better voting system suitable to British conditions that was genuinely democratic and uh, fair in terms of its representation, which provided stable government uh, and which allowed voters' choice. Uh, and which also kept a connection with individual constituencies, a geographical connection. Uh, and he came up with a formula which is rather similar to the one that's currently employed for the Scottish Parliament and in Germany, uh, an additional member system where uh, large numbers of MPs are selected as through constituencies, but maybe by choosing one, two, three, an alternative vote rather than a cross, um, and you also have an additional group of members of parliament who were chosen on the basis of their party's representation and proportionality. So it's a, pr a compromise. Uh, we've seen it works. It works well in Germany. It produces more consensual, less confrontational forms of government. Uh, and we've seen it employed in Scotland, and it works perfectly well there. So my final point is this. I think we are heading to a period, maybe a change of government with a very large majority, we can't be absolutely sure, where constitutional reform will once again be on the agenda. Uh, and there are two prime candidates. One is a fundamental reform of the House of Lords and the other is a fundamental reform of our voting system for Parliament. And I, I, I wish good speed that we have those reforms. They're badly needed because the system is not functioning effectively at present. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Sir Vince, for that. Uh, Sir John? Ah, oh, it's Lord Sumption's next. Sorry, um, my apologies. Lord I Sumption. don't disagree uh, with Vince Cable as strongly as I expected to. <laughs> um, uh, though I would point out that both of the reforms that he has been considering can be achieved without constitutional change by ordinary legislation uh, under our current system. Uh, what I think I mean uh, by constitutional change is some change in the way in which uh, we have to do things, for example, uh, by having a written constitution. But let me stick to the agenda that's already been sketched out. Uh, electoral reform. Uh, I have completely changed my mind on this subject in the last five or six years. Um, originally, uh, I took the view uh, that, uh, yes, uh, the current first-past-the-post system um, uh, produces results that are in some ways anomalous. Uh, its effect is essentially to magnify the impact of what may be relatively small swings, thereby enabling um, a, a party uh, without a majority in the... Um, uh, in the electorate at large uh, to achieve a working majority in the House of Commons. I think that system has historically uh, stood us in very good stead. Uh, it has enabled governments to achieve a measure of stability uh, which would not otherwise have been available and which is a very considerable advantage. It's also enabled a governments uh, to act quite radically in a way that they would not have been able to do without uh, with, a, with a proportion of seats in the Commons that exactly corresponded to their support in the electorate. So for pragmatic reasons, I was in favour of the first-past-the-post system. 
Why have I changed my mind? Uh, I think for this reason. For many years uh, after Britain became a democracy towards the end of the 19th century, uh, the major political parties between them encompassed the whole range of um, non-extreme political opinion. Um, in the early 1950s, which was probably the high point of party membership, um, uh, the uh, Conservative Party uh, had something like three million members. Uh, the Labour Party had about uh, a million serious members and uh, a larger number who were theoretically members but were essentially part of the card vote of its participating trades unions. Um, so that a really quite significant proportion of the electorate was a member of a political party. And that was in part the, the consequence of uh, social habits which have changed. Uh, entertainment in the home was a much less significant feature of life in Britain in the 1950s than it is now. Uh, and so clubs, which, whose purpose was at least as much social as it was political, brought people together. People joined conservative or labor clubs for many reasons that had absolutely nothing to do with politics. So you had a, a membership of political parties that covered a broad conspectus of opinion. That has now changed. The current position is uh, that the Conservative Party has an undisclosed number of members, but it's reckoned to be something around 160,000. Uh, the Labour Party has a larger membership uh, as a result of the, um, uh, member, the, the attempt to boost membership for the purpose of, of appointing the leader uh, earlier uh, in the previous decade. Uh, but it's still the case uh, that the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds uh, has a number of membership role about three times the size of all three major national parties put together. That is a very unsatisfactory state of affairs because what it means uh, is that uh, constituency parties, uh, certainly of the two major parties, and, Labour and Conservative, uh, consist of people who are highly active, highly engaged in politics. Most British people are interested in politics, but they're not highly engaged in it. Uh, activists, by definition, tend towards the extremes. So what you've got uh, is uh, two major parties uh, who have got members who are unrepresentative uh, of the electorate at large, because they are more inclined to go for more extreme uh, solutions. It's by definition, if you really are interested in taking time off uh, out of your evenings, not in order to play darts and drink beer, but to discuss politics, by definition, you are uh, an extremist. I'm afraid that's the reality of the matter. Now, we have seen this happen in the Labour Party uh, when um, the membership gates were opened uh, and momentum took it over, resulting in a Labour Party that was entirely unrepresentative even of its own electoral base. Exactly the same thing has happened in the Conservative Party as a result of the Brexiteer movement taking over what had previously been a broadly uh, Europhile political party. The result of these trends has been uh, that the political parties no longer represent uh, a conspectus of opinion across the board, 
uh, they represent uh, a relatively, by historical standards, a relatively narrow position at the edge of the political spectrum. The, the problem is that that seriously diminishes the, um, uh, 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 the choices available uh, to the electorate at general elections. Um, as a result of that is uh, that we do not have a system which is capable of producing results that most people would recognise uh, as being desirable. I mean, the function of any democracy uh, is never going to be to uh, produce the ideal solution. The most that a democracy can hope to achieve is to produce a slate of policies that nobody would have chosen as their preferred choice, but the largest possible number of people can actually live with. So what I think that one needs to do is to have an electoral system which essentially forces uh, political parties to engage in compromise between themselves. Uh, to do that, you need more and smaller parties representing between them uh, a continuous range of political ideas of the kind that I think the current first-past-the-post system once achieved uh, and doesn't any longer. Uh, I am not in favour of the alternative vote system, which is essentially an institutionalised form of tactical voting, but I would be in favour uh, of a, a proper proportional representation system. Uh, I think a good deal of work would need to go into designing it, uh, and it would certainly uh, reduce the level of personal engagement between MPs and their constituencies. I recognise those as disadvantages, but it seems to me, on balance, the advantages considerably outweigh them. I think the House of Lords is, because of its secondary place in the legislative process, a much less important issue. Clearly, what is mainly wrong with the House of Lords uh, is the selection process, uh, which uh, is entirely in the hands of the Prime Minister, uh, subject to political conventions, uh, such as the, uh, the right of the opposition to nominate uh, some peers, uh, the Prime Minister's resignation honours, controversial subject at the moment. Uh, and clearly, I think the, uh, the system for selection needs to be taken out of the hands of the Prime Minister uh, and given to a body which would be, have some political representation but would also be dominated by, um, uh, by more neutral figures. Uh, I don't agree with Vince about the sort of people that should be in an, a, a second chamber. Uh, it seems to me that what one wants uh, is people who have um, expertise, who have experience, but who have had better things to do with their life so far uh, than to uh, run for election for the House of Commons. Um, uh, and uh, to my mind, about uh, something between half and two-thirds of the current membership of the House of Lords um, actually fulfils that criteria. Uh, and I would say that that even applies to the 92 hereditary peers. Uh, Vince Cable described to you in loving terms the system of uh, selection of peers at random. Well, uh, if you're going to have selection of peers at random, it seems to me that the 92 peers um, that are hereditary come pretty close to random selection. Uh, however, I wouldn't actually choose my peers at random. I would choose them for what they've achieved, for what they've done, for what they know, and for the fact that they have not had to spend their life struggling 
uh, through the electoral system for office, uh, something which deters large numbers of sensible people with a great deal to contribute uh, to our national life. Uh, so I would make that change, but I wouldn't make any other changes. Uh, I would uh, 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 rely on the House of Lords to fulfil its traditional function as a revising chamber bound by, not elected, but bound by conventions which made it subordinate to the uh, elected House of Commons. Thank you, my Lord. And final, finally, Professor Sir John. Thank you very much. Um, my two esteemed panellists have um, given you very clear arguments about what they think should be done. I want to do something slightly different, which is to get us to think about how we should think about what should be done. Uh, probably the most important lesson I ever got as an undergraduate student at this institution was in my second year in an economics tutorial. And I didn't learn much economics, by the way, but I did do some economics. Um, the, and the lesson I learnt was the importance of being clear about the criteria by which you're evaluating anything in any argument. So I'm going to start very academically with criteria. Because the truth is, any arguments about constitutional reform, constitutional proposals, constitutional change, they should start with specifying the function or the purpose of the institution or arrangements that you are wanting to put in place. Because it's only when you are clear about their function and their purpose that you can then get into arguments about whether or not PR is better than first past the post versus anything else, or indeed whether or not the House of Lords should be elected, appointed, or some mixture of the two. So that's where I want to start. And it's what you then need to be looking at in a constitutional arrangement is to say, well, given that it's the function or the purpose that I'm, or purposes that I'm trying to achieve, what arrangements would be best able to achieve that? But in doing that, by the way, don't necessarily assume that some existing arguments are necessarily valid. Arguments about what constitutional proposals will lead to what outcomes. Well, A, my discipline, political science, will tell you it, or it, the answer to that is often it, 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 it depends. But certainly don't necessarily assume that some of the laser arguments are correct. So that's where I want to start. In doing that, two other things we need to be aware of. One is that we often want to achieve more than one thing with any set of constitutional arrangements, and there may be tensions between those, and Lord Sumption has already mentioned uh, uh, some of that so far as electoral reform is concerned. But the other thing, obviously, which is crucial is legitimacy. Any set of constitutional arrangements at the end of the day in a democracy require the consent of the governed. So let me then start with the electoral system. Very often we hear arguments, and we heard it from Sir Vince, not but no means unique in that respect, the current system is undemocratic, unfair. You hear that argument frequently. But the trouble is we first of all need to ask ourselves, what do we expect elections to achieve? And there is a very clear distinction uh, within the literature about what elections are meant to achieve. One possible function is to say, well, essentially... Elections are about 
electing governments or electing executives. They allow the electorate to choose between alternative governments. The alternative, which is what Lord Sumption was beginning to talk about, is to say, no, no, what we want, and what Savince clearly what has always wanted, is to have a system whereby we create a legislature that is more or less a mirror reflection of, the, of public opinion in the wider public, but we then rely on the legislature to form and sustain the government. And in part, we have to decide which of these two things are too important. Now, the truth is that majoritarian vision is above all, actually, it's not, a, not simply a question of electoral systems, it's a question of executives. The most obvious way of having majoritarian winner-take-all system is have a directly elected presidency. Directly elected mayors are, in effect, a form of majoritarian outcome, which is why they sometimes are not popular with members of the Electoral Reform Society. Um, uh, but certainly, if you do have a directly elected executive, then it's very, very difficult to come up with an argument for them to have a majoritarian system to elect whatever assembly they're accountable to. So I think that much is pretty clear. Um, but otherwise, if you believe in majoritarian government, you can say, well, what we want to do is to have... Uh, a parliamentary election which makes it pretty likely that one party is getting the overall majority. Now, historically, as Lord Sumption has pointed out, this has often been the way in which first-past-the-post has been regarded. However, and I can get into this first, further in the Q&A if you want, in my view, first-past-the-post is a very poor way of delivering majoritarian government. It is not guaranteed to deliver it. It only delivers under certain contingent circumstances. And essentially what's happened in the UK in the last 40, 50 years is that those contingent circumstances no longer hold. A, the system no longer keeps third parties out of the House of Commons in the way it did in the 50s and 60s. And B, this coming back to something Lord Sumption was referring to, the ability of the system to exaggerate swings between Conservative and Labour is now much diminished. There are many fewer marginal seats. Um, and therefore, because of that, actually, the fact that we had a hung parliament in 2010 and in 2017 and almost had one in 2015, no accident. That is the product of those two changes. And the next election could well again produce another hung parliament. However, it's perfectly possible to devise electoral systems which are deliberately majoritarian. Both Italy and Greece currently stroke in the recent past have had in Italy, for example, whoever is the largest party or bloc, guaranteed 55% of the votes in the Chamber of Deputies. So you can create deliberately disproportional systems. But what is true, if you're going to create any system that requires you, that means you're trying to achieve some reasonably systematic relationship between votes cast across the country as a whole and, uh, and the outcome in terms of the assembly, whether that's majoritarian or proportional, you cannot do it with single-member constituencies. And in fact, in my view, single-member constituencies are simply a single-person closed-party list system and if indeed you do want to keep individual MPs accountable, which is arguably another purpose you might want out of elections, you can do it much better in a multi-party system that allows voters uh, uh, to express a preference. But as I say, the crucial thing, first of all, is you have to decide what is the function of elections. My argument simply about first-past-the-post is a rather lousy way of delivering majoritarian government. If you believe in majoritarian government, there are much better ways of doing it. Second chambers... 
most of the debate, I, re I was recently reading a paper over the weekend, most of the debate about um, uh, the House of Lords, including the one that was started by the coalition in 2011, all the focus was on composition. Virtually none of the debate was about purpose. And I have to say, although actually I think the document is very weak on composition, it virtually says nothing, the recent paper that the Labour Party has come out with is remarkable for actually spending a lot of time about what is the purpose of the institutional change that we want to create. But let's pick out some things. One, the most obvious thing that people talk about is that we are looking for, a, if indeed you've got a primary chamber, the House of Commons, whose principal purpose is to sustain a government, okay, then arguably you need a second chamber which is going to engage in less partisan scrutiny of legislation because in this chamber the fate of the government is not at stake so government defeats don't really matter quite so much and which at least gives the government stroke the commons the chance to think again and which perhaps along the way spends a bit more time looking at the detailed legislation than perhaps the House of Commons often engages in and that's the, the function into which the House of Lords has, has morphed uh, organically in our constitution. But there are other ways of thinking about second chambers. One obvious one in many societies, uh, which you have more than one uh, entity, is to use it to have regional representation, to try to keep the different bits of the country together. So, you know, Germany is one obvious example. Um, and you use it to try to coordinate across uh, tiers of government. Third possibility, which the House of Lords has a bit of, you cannot extend the life of the House of Commons beyond five years without the House of Lords say so, is to provide some constitutional protection of what you might regard as crucial democratic foundations. And again, you want that done by a body that doesn't necessarily kowtow to, as much to the electoral uh, 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 demands of the parties. Now, in the UK, the problem with the regional representation thing, although the Labour Party is kind of calling it assemblies of nations and regions, and you can see some of the reasons why it's doing that, but because England is so dominant, the idea that you would have, let's say, you know, equal numbers of people from England, Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland, well, you can kind of see why a few people in England might be a wee bit upset about that idea. So, it's very, as with so much about devolution in the UK, it's very difficult to do because of the asymmetry in the size of our, our, our component uh, entities. Um, we've, tr but we do have the question of legitimacy. We do have the problem with appointments, and Sir Vince has quite rightly pointed out some of the arguments. If you look at public opinion, public opinion seems to suggest on quite a lot of polling is that actually it thinks that perhaps a hybrid house, partly appointed, but perhaps not necessarily just appointed by the Prime Minister, and partly elected might be desirable, and maybe that will give us the mixture uh, uh, that will require. But I think it's certainly worth being aware that the, solving the problem of the House of Lords in some senses is quite different. It's nuanced and is going to be a, a question of prime minister, of, of, uh, of compromise. So, but I say to you, the crucial thing, first of all, in all of this, think about what you want these institutions, these arrangements to achieve. And it's only when you've sorted out in your mind the answer to that question that can you then begin to think about well, what might deliver that? And in addressing that question, just bear in mind that perhaps some of the arguments that people use about what is what X will deliver Y aren't always necessarily true.
Thank you very much, Professor Sir John. Um, now we'll move on to some questions to all of you, I suppose, on that. Um, and it falls to me, I suppose, to be play devil's advocate in favour of first past the post, a role I'm very happy to take on. Um, so I think going back to what Sir John said about working out what the purpose of, of, of enacting such a change is, both Lord Sumption and Sir Vince uh, claimed that first past the post no longer reliably leads to good government for, for various reasons. Is there any certainty that proportional systems will lead to any better systems of government. One needs only to look at Belgium or, or Sweden or um, you know, countless continental European countries to see that proportionality does not always equal good governance. Is it worth tampering with a system we know works, although not perfectly, in favour of one that could tear the country apart? Uh, Sir Vince, I'll go to you first for this. Well, we can't be absolutely sure, obviously. Um, we can't predict the outcomes. Uh, and I would question your argument that continental systems, which are mainly proportional in some form, I mean, there are, there are differences. France's, you know, presidential system is a bit different from the Dutch and the Belgium and so on. But, um, but by and large, um, Western European countries uh, have had stability, um, are, have, have legislatures and governments that are more representative of the public than ours. Um, so it's not absolutely certain, but, but I think that, that, that partly answers your, your, your point. I mean, I, I do agree with um, Lord Sumption that, you know, there are attractions in having a fully proportional system of which the, the model that I guess we would use was what's sometimes called a single transferable vote, which is the Irish system. Um, and the Scottish would, system, Vince, and the uh, Scottish and system. And uh, local government, yes. Yes. In, but in, in national elections, the Irish, I mean, it actually was introduced by the British government when Ireland oh, yeah, became sure. no, independent. Course, yeah. uh, and it's worked for them. Uh, and you have the two major historical parties, Fianna Foyle, Fianna Gael. You have Sinn Féin, which is properly represented. Uh, and yet now you have the Greens and smaller parties like the Democrats. There is a a reasonably representative selection. You have coalition government uh, and the concept of parties working together in a wider national interest. Um, the Irish model may not be perfect, but it, it, it just shows, I think, there is nothing to be afraid of. Um, I mean, the, the, the argument about the first-past-the-post system providing stability isn't consistent with our recent experience. I mean, the coalition government tried to embed more stability in the system by having fixed-term parliaments, but this broke down predominantly around the Brexit issue. Not least um, because your party decided to well, do, 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 decided yes, to do I, the issue. I won't go into the sordid details <laughs> who in my party decided to do it. But, but um, yeah, but, 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 but we've lost that anchor yeah. also. Lord, Lord, Lord Sumption, you talked about the legitimacy by which these decisions can be made. Given that the general public, the electorates, overwhelmingly rejected the case for electoral reform in the AV referendum in 2013, is there any legitimacy with which a government can approach electoral reform so soon after this referendum? Well, I think the first point to make is that there is no electoral system which is capable of being devised that will guarantee good government. Um, 
and the, the, one reason for that, probably the most important single reason, is, is that all systems, all constitutions, without exception, and this includes uh, the most formal uh, and the most elaborately written down constitutions, they all depend, to a greater or lesser degree, uh, on a shared political culture which regards uh, the operation, the, the efficient operation of the system as being more important than the answer to any particular political issue. The disappearance of that shared culture in two countries with radically different electoral and constitutional systems, namely the country, this country and the United States, uh, shows that whatever your constitution says and whatever your electoral system, without a shared political culture, you're lost. Uh, now, as to the other points that, that Vince made, I think the problem about um, uh, all systems of transferable or alternative votes is that they produce anomalies uh, just as striking as first-past-the-post. They may be slightly different anomalies, but they're just as anomalous. Um, in particular, I hesitate to suggest that this may be one of the reasons why uh, uh, Vince Cable is so keen on them, they exaggerate the uh, uh, electoral representation of smaller parties. Uh, and it seems to me, therefore, that uh, a proper proportional representation system, which I accept would mean um, multi-member constituencies, uh, is, I'm not going to say the ideal solution, but it's the least unsatisfactory system bearing in mind that all human political arrangements so without want, exception so want, are unsatisfactory. So you want a closed party list, multi-member system, do you? Uh, I don't want a closed party list and I don't think that that's necessarily inevitable. You, it is the way in which some PR systems operate. Mm -hmm. Other systems, um, uh, such as the ones that operate in the German lender, for example, uh, operate on the basis that the electorate chooses both a party mm -hmm. and the individuals sure. Uh, who, are to, um, uh, uh, who are to be elected of the, in that party's um, uh, representation. Sure. Uh, and it seems to me that although that's quite complicated, uh, it is in fact the, the best system. Uh, that's what I would like to see primarily because it would fragment the, uh, the current party system. I am opposed now to any system of elections which essentially uh, consolidates and makes permanent the duopoly uh, uh, under which two parties take it in turn uh, to, to get elected without having, when they've been elected, to compromise with anybody, which is why, in spite of what I recognise to be its adverse effects on political stability, I would favour a system uh, under which there would be more smaller parties and governments, as in Germany, would have to be formed on the basis of a large measure of compromise between different points of view. Um, okay, I mean, you're right. There is no perfect electoral system. There is no perfect electoral system in terms of what it, what it produces, and there is no electoral system that isn't open to potential anomalies and, 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 and people trying to game the system. That, that's, that has to be taken as read. Um, also, by the way, don't assume that proportional representation will necessarily deliver lots of lovely compromise. From those of us who come from north of the border, the idea that proportional representation has, in, has re resulted and heralded an era of compromise 
is for the birds. Uh, uh, politics in Scotland is now more polarised than, than it ever was 20 years ago. And of course, by the way, you can have a proportional electoral system, but if one party gets enough votes, it will still get an overall majority um, of the seats. So we can't assume that uh, uh, systems will have something like because partly of essentially the arguments Lord Assumption was making, which, were, which is that uh, basically how institutions work doesn't just depend on the rules, it depends on the culture within which they operate, both amongst the elites, but also amongst the general public, you know, how people in the end decide to use electoral systems. So there are guarantees and that, you know, I mean, you know, one of the ironies, Lord Sumption, about the world that you're, we're now in that you don't like, of course, is that the reason why the Labour Party opened up um, elections inside it to so-called one-member-one-vote was in the belief that this would result in making the Labour Party more moderate. And then along came Jeremy Corbyn and used that system and pushed it in the opposite direction. That's a very clear example of where a constitutional change, which was designed to achieve one objective, ended up achieving another. And of but course, you're thinking of a different electorate. You're talking about the electorate within yeah, sure, the Labour sure, Party. Sure, because the, whereas the rest Labour of us Party, are talking about the electorate nationally. Sure, but, the, sure, but the, it's an example of how a constitutional change was designed to achieve one objective, which was to moderate the Labour Party by opening up uh, if the electoral processes inside the Labour Party ended up in the end having the opposite effect and the effect that you, the effect, the, the effect that you uh, dislike. But I mean, to come back to what you're saying, I mean, first of all, look, the referendum in 2011 was not about proportional representation. It was the choice between the two most similar electoral systems known to man, right? And the alternative vote is another majoritarian system. So it was not a choice between two systems that encapsulate or exemplify that fundamental difference between majoritarian and proportional systems. But the second point comes back to the point I was making, right? Um, 2010 was not, actually February 1974 was not an accident. October 1974 was not an accident. We only ended up having so many um, elections with relatively large majorities uh, because um, we had elections in which one party won by a very large margin and this masked a fundamental change in our electoral geography. Then along, uh, Sir Vince's party started to work out how to win seats, so from 1997 onwards, the number of third parties increased. Scotland is now no longer part of the British, and there is no longer a British party system. Scotland is no longer part of the party system, so you now have Northern Ireland entirely out of the system, so small parties get lots of seats. We've now got Scotland outside of the system, a, very, a relatively small party gets a very large number of seats and will potentially get hinged status in, inside the House of Commons, which we would rarely do under proportional representation. Um, so the, the, the first-past-the-post system exemplifies the power and the hinge power of relatively small nationalist parties, right? And it isn't very good, at, therefore, anymore at delivering overall majorities. I mean, the range of results, of the if the current electoral geography doesn't change, any result at the next election between something like a two or a three-point Conservative lead and maybe as much as a 14-point Labour lead will result in a hung pardon. All right? This is not what the system's made about. So this is why I would say to you, if you believe in majoritarian government, you actually also need to believe in electoral reform because there are far, far better ways of delivering systematically disproportional results than the single-member priority system. But you just have to give up on the idea that things have to be done through single-member constituencies. That's the price you have to pay. Could, could I just add a couple of 
rejoinders to uh, John's comments. I mean, the first of all, the referendum that we had in 2015 was a, was a very strange event and really had nothing to do with fundamental electoral reform. Um, my party wanted to have um, a, a choice between proportional voting and the first-past-the-post system. The Conservatives, who were the, much the larger party in the coalition, wouldn't agree to consider any change unless it involved as little change as possible, which is why the only choice on the ballot paper, as you correctly say, was between our bad system and one that was just... Almost as bad. Almost as bad. <laughs> uh, so it has no significance for what happens in future. But in terms of what happens in future, th there is a question none of us have yet touched on, which is what would trigger a change in system. We have a, a kind of unwritten convention that um, parties that incorporate something in their manifesto then have the legitimacy to introduce a fundamental constitutional change in Parliament. But if they don't, they have to have a referendum. I mean, I don't think that's ever written down anywhere, but that is assumed to be the way we operate. And the really big debate going on at the moment is within the Labour Party, which is considering, I don't know whether they've come to a conclusion, to whether to commit themselves at the next election to electoral reform no, the, the, the without a referendum. The party voted for it at the last conference, it's just that the leader isn't in favour. Yes. So we probably won't get into the manifesto. So, well, so talking but, about... But that is the crucial issue. Yeah, sure. So, so well, the same problem as Tony Blair, right? He wasn't in favour of it, so therefore it didn't end up in the manifesto. So talking about the, the practicalities then, let's say we get to the next general election, um, it's a very slim Labour majority, yeah. um, with a you know, 40 seats to the SNP, is there any, even if it's on the Labour Party manifesto at that point, is there a feasible way within one parliament, one, one five-year electoral timeline, of pushing through significant electoral reform yeah. when there won't be agreement within any of the parties in favour of electoral reform as to what that reform looks like? Well, there is a scenario, and it depends on the numbers, uh, and John will tell us what the numbers are, <laughs> in, in which the, the Labour Party win in the sense that they get the larger number of MPs. They don't get an overall majority, but they depend on, say, 25, 30 Lib Dems rather than on the SNP. Under that set of circumstances, <laughs> um, the Lib Dems would almost certainly offer support. I'm not speaking for them, but I, I, I mean, I'm sketching out a plausible story. Um, in, in, and the condition for giving support to a Labour government under those circumstances would be electoral reform of a radical kind towards proportionality. And the process of mapping out what that change was going to be? Is there a royal commission? Is there an interparliamentary working group? Where do we go from the point of a Lib Lab pact like in 1974 to 1979? Well, my, to my argument would be that that homework has been done. It was done by the Jenkins Commission under the Blair government. It's, it's, it produced a, a roadmap to a system that is more proportional than the present, but has an element of compromise and does retain constituencies. Lord Jenkins is actually looking down at us from the <laughs> yeah. side over yeah. there. Yeah, yeah I, mean, I, mean, I, mean, I mean, you touched on a, an important point. I mean, the, the crucial thing about 
the introduction of um, particularly the system in Scotland was that it was basically negotiated between Labour and the Liberal Democrats in the Scottish Constitutional, Constitutional Convention long before the 1997 election. Uh, so therefore, you know, th there wasn't any argument. I think the truth is the Labour Party has committed itself to PR in principle, but it's not back to p a particular uh, uh, system. Liberal Democrats, I think, are probably officially still in favour of STV, but a lot of them will basically take whatever they can get. Um, so, I, I mean, you're, you're, you're right. I mean, I suspect there would be some kind of commission or other to try to frame an agreement. I mean, inside the Labour Party, the, the constant cons concern is that uh, the reason why they're rather keen on the German system of an SDV is they dis have historically disliked systems that promote internal party competition, which something like the single transferable vote does, because it then potentially encourages candidates between candidates of the same party to get election. And they te they've tended to shy away from that. Um, so, um, uh, so I think you know, there, will, there will be arguments there. But it, it, it's, you know, if you have a five-year parliament, you could spend a year uh, with a commission, you can then put it to a referendum, um, and you could probably get it, you, I mean, depending on what you decide to do, you could probably get the system in place within a couple of years. It's, you're right, it, it's, it's a full parliament's work, but it could be done. And last question on electoral reform. Um, I suppose this is um, aimed at all three of you, but particularly Sir John. Um, would a more proportional electoral system tear the two main parties apart, particularly the Labour <laughs> Party? <laughs> I mean... The answer to that is, is not necessarily, I think. Um, I mean, one of the most remarkable things about... I mean, this comes back to Lord Sumption's remarks. One of the most remarkable things about what happened in British politics in the last decade is the way in which our two parties have managed still to survive dominating our politics despite the way in which Brexit cut across so much of our traditional party loyalties. And if you compare that what's happened in the Netherlands, what's happened in France, what's happened in Spain, what's happened in Italy, all of which have seen very substantial changes in their political systems, not least because of uh, the rise of populism, the, uh, the advance of the far right, I mean, of which the UKIP was arguably a, a, a particular example in the UK. Um, and even though, I mean, people tend to forget this, in the spring of 2019, it was Conservative 25% in the polls, Labour 25% in the polls, his lot uh, coming up behind, but the Brexit Party also doing a lot of damage. And at that stage, we were asking questions. Would our two largest parties survive? By the end of that year, they, well, Labour, Conservatives certainly survived and the Labour Party was still just about intact. Um, so they, they, they've proven to be remarkably durable. And I wouldn't necessarily assume that the system would necessarily change. I mean, certainly within Scotland, um, we expanded the system. Well, the Greens have got in, but that's it, right? Um, but the structure of the, otherwise, the structure of the party system in Scotland is still very similar to what it was in the 1990s before PR was introduced. So, you know, again, there's no guarantee as to, as to, as to, how, things, as to how things would play out. But, I, of course, what is, again, would depend on circumstances. Of course, what is true, at the moment, what you could well imagine happening is you could, well, you could imagine the Conservative Party being more likely to split because it is split uh, uh, over Brexit. It is split also between those who are happy with, who want a deregulated, um, low-tax society and those who are more moderate disposition. You could see some of that happening. But, you know... I dare, I dare say this in Sir Vince's presence, the history of centre parties in the UK is littered with failure. Moving on to the House of Lords then, uh, Lord Sumption, 
Speaking of the purpose and um, future of the House of Lords, uh, not since Lord Carrington has one of the great officers of state been held by uh, a member of the House of Lords rather than a member of the House of Commons, and um, there are no peers currently uh, sitting in Cabinet. Should any future reform to the House of Lords see it purely as a legislation on a scrutiny chamber or one that has the capability to produce government ministers and the legitimacy to produce government ministers? Well, there's no current uh, principle or rule which says that you can't have peers uh, in, the, uh, uh, in the Cabinet. Uh, and uh, indeed, um, uh, in the last Labour government, there were peers in the Cabinet. Some of them were appointed peers specifically for the purpose of being there. Um, I, uh, I don't see any reason why the basic function of the Lords should change simply because one gets rid of the absurd system under which it is currently recruited. Um, uh, it is, I think Vince Cable is absolutely right to say uh, that uh, there are difficulties about having two elected chambers. Um, you can see how that difficulty can play out by looking at the current situation in the United States with one party in command of one house and another in command of the other. Um, so the function of the second chamber has to be, I think, subordinate to uh, that of the elected chamber. It's only on that basis uh, that uh, a second chamber which is appointed uh, can be regarded as consistent with, with democracy. Um, so I view it as uh, an expert chamber uh, with, the, uh, with the time and independence of mind to scrutinise uh, not just the small print of legislation, but the basic principle underlying it. That's what the House of Lords is currently for, uh, and I do not see why, if we fill it uh, with um, the right sort of people, uh, it, that its basic purpose should change. Sir Vince, how would your Citizens' Assembly be able to produce government ministers, or would that be part of the uh, status quo that is abandoned? No, it wouldn't be part of the proposal at all. Um, I mean, going back to what Sir John said earlier, um, if the purpose of general elections is to produce a parliament that can produce a government, then having appointed ministers that lack legitimacy, um, whether they're from the Lords or from anywhere else, an American presidential-type system. No, I, I, my, my idea of the Citizens' Assembly, it's not a you know, view I hold passionately, just we're, we're, we're looking at different options. And I think if um, Lord Sumption's idea of a, a corruption-free appointment system could be devised, and it's quite difficult to see it. I mean, you see the pressures at the moment on the BBC in terms of its chairman, right? You, 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 however hard you try to create an institution which is independent of government, uh, at the end of the day, government will find a way through to try to influence it. But if, if it can be made reasonably watertight and the appointment system can be indeed of people of excellence and experience, then I think that's a perfectly good model. So to step back and review... Can the I just intervene there? One example of an institution which is corruption-free and which is appointed without the government being able to muscle into it, is the judiciary. Um, 
Now, we have managed to devise a system. We, the judges at every level used to be appointed by the Lord Chancellor, a government minister. He was constrained by conventions, which he by and large observed, but there were reasons for thinking that that might not continue for much longer, so the system was changed. So we have had, for the last 17 years, a system which achieves exactly that, and I don't see why that should not be extended to the revising chamber of, of the Parliament. Or indeed the diocese and bishops of the, house of, of the Church of England. Well, that's, bishops are a different issue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but taking a step back and viewing the whole question, um, it is often said, and indeed I've had this said to me by a, a, Lib, a Lib Dem MP, that the House of Lords is actually the only part of um, our constitutional setup that fulfills its job adequately. House of Lords, despite being you know, bloated and nepotistic, does succeed in spotting legislational errors. It scrutinises um, government bills very well. And that, in fact, focusing on the constitutional problems of the House of Lords is just a way of ignoring much larger problems with the failure of good chat politics, um, toxicity in um, politics generally, and the failings of the House of Commons. Do you think that this is inadequate? Well, analysis? there is something to be said for that. Um, but actually, it's not a triumph of the House of Lords. It's just that the, the House of Commons is appallingly bad at doing what it's supposed to do, which is to legislate. Um, that MPs regard legislation as the least important aspect of their work, uh, which is essentially getting re-elected by becoming an effective local representative or you know, climbing up the greasy pole to be part of the government. So that the legislative side of the work of the House of Commons is frequently neglected, uh, and uh, the processes which it uses, I mean, it's just so old-fashioned, so hopelessly out of date. I mean, you know, I spent 20 years in the House of Commons, and your, your day is spent waiting for bells to ring, uh, and, you go, and you're voting on a piece of legislation that you have no idea what the legislation is about, so you ask the chief whip standing at the door to tell you what you're voting on, go this way, this is what the party has decided. Uh, I mean, it, 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 it is actually a highly inefficient and really rather demeaning way of legislating. And so it, it, there needs to be not just a betterly, better constituted House of Commons, but one which has much more um, effective procedures for legislative control itself. And in that case, the House of Lords will be less important. Sir so John, if we're now agreed, it seems, um, Sir Vincent Lord Sumption have sort of agreed that if you could have a, an appointed House of Lords, perhaps the cap number with a fair appointment yeah, I, I, I wouldn't entirely join that consensus. I think the problem you still have is a problem of legitimacy. Um, and I was just checking some of the, some of the numbers of, on the polling. Um, the public don't necessarily want a wholly elected House. Uh, quite a lot of people will be happy with a half-appointed, half-elected House, but not very many people in the wider public are willing to defend the wholly appointed house. Um, so I suspect, in, 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 I mean, insofar as... I mean, of course, one of the reasons in the end why we, the House of Lords is appointed is because the Commons MPs, above all, are concerned that it would make the Lords more legitimate and therefore more effective. And we should recognise this. So amongst the people who are, above all, keenest on keeping the Lords in their box... Uh, by reducing their legitimacy are, are members of the House of Commons. But that actually, so far as the wider public is concerned, this does therefore potentially weaken the House of Lords. So I think probably uh, we are going to have to go to a system which at least has a measure of election, 
perhaps for longer terms, which is one of the things that was in the, in the original coalition proposal, so that the members are reasonably insulated from the electoral fray once they're in, but the public at least have some say over, his, uh, over who is in. I think they probably would need to have some choice of the individuals within parties. We can argue about which electoral system best delivers that. Um, but that, yes, that, that the House of Lords does indeed need to... Um, Therefore, I still be able to play its role as secretary chamber. Of course, the other thing that's very interestingly in the Labour Party uh, document is extending constitutional protection beyond the quinquennial uh, length of the House of Commons to a, to a number of range of other things, including things like the Sewell Convention that governs the relationship between Parliament and the Scottish Parliament, um, uh, uh, and uh, aspects of uh, other judicial matters. Uh, and that's again, potentially quite controversial, but it's kind of moving towards quasi beginning to entrench some things as being constitutional rather than just statutory. Um, and um, that, in that, the House of Lords, according to the Labour Party, would also have a role, a role as a body that's less dependent on the partisan fray and therefore more willing to question whether or not breaking the constitutional rules is indeed justified in a particular case. Do you think then in this process it's worth looking overseas to Ireland or Canada, seem to be the ones, I mean, I'll defer to your expertise on this, that have systems that aren't wholly elected, that work quite well, Canada's ensures regional... Yeah, I mean, again, Canada, again, I mean, Canada, of course, is slightly different because they're, they're partly also trying to achieve regional representation across Canada. Um, it, but the, the system of appointment... Regions. Sure, yeah, exactly. Um, that, that's, but it, at, at, at least you've got two big provinces in Canada. Um, the, 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 but the system of appointment is still questioned, et cetera, et cetera. And that, there's still a question mark there as to whether, how far we can continue uh, uh, to deal with that, I think, in the longer run. And I, think, I think certainly the House of Lords would be stronger if it were at least partly elected, but that's one of the reasons why the Commons is reluctant. I'm aware that we've hit six o'clock, um, so um, feel free to dash out if you have to. Uh, but if you have any questions, uh, now's the time to ask. Please raise your hand or membership card and we'll go to you. Um, the, oh, we'll wait for people to leave first so that the, 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 the filming continues. Hi, thank you very much for speaking. I think all three panellists discussed some remarkable and much needed constitutional reforms, but these top-down reforms arguably don't deal with some of the major problems, which is mass political disillusionment and voter apathy within the system. And for those who feel disgruntled or disillusioned by the system, any reforms might be seen as the elites tinkering with it to benefit themselves. So I wonder if the panelists believe that constitutional reforms can solve the root causes of this problem, or rather there are some other solutions that are necessary on top of constitutional reforms. Thank you. Um, anyone want to dive yeah, in? Yeah, sure, I'll pick that up. Um, first of all, can I very gently question the premise of your question? I hear lots of people going, Oh, people don't trust politicians anymore. They don't trust the system. The honest truth is they never have done. Um, we can argue that probably it's quite a good thing they don't because after all, at the end of the day, the state uh, 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 claims the monopoly of the legitimate use of violence and that's a really, really serious power. And arguably we should be critical about any institution that, that has that power. But also, by the way, I mean, Brexit was actually good for improving trust in government. It changed the kind of people who have trust in government 
But uh, so historically, if you look through the long-term trend, um, people who tend to be Europhile tend to be more trusting of government. All right. Um, when, when, when did trust? Well, trust, there are various cases when trust in government fell. It fell during the expenses scandal, but then it fell away. It really fell in 2019. You know that Parliament, which arguably is a PR uh, activist. Wonderful. You know, government can't do anything. We have a parliament in which, you know, it really was actually really, really powerful. And the public hated it. They hated this stuff. And trusting government absolutely fell because, of course, neither Remainers nor Leavers thought they were going to get what they wanted. So trusting government fell. Once Leavers got what they wanted, trusting government amongst Leavers rose quite substantially. So you know, I'm not entirely clear. But to answer your, your question, insofar. I mean, it is true it's got rather more difficult to get the electorate to the polling station than it was. Though that still said, if you ask the public an existential question, you will get an answer. I mean, again, north of the border, it's rather different. You know, the 2014 independence referendum, you know, ask people which state they want to be part of. 85% of people turn out to vote, which was the highest level of uh, uh, voting in any uh, ele uh, election or ballot in Scotland since the, uh, the mass franchise in 1918. So if you give people a big question to ask, we can still get quite a substantial turnout. But, it, it, but I grant you it's got more difficult. But uh, do I think constitutional reform is going to do this? No. I mean, I'm, I'm particularly sceptical of the claim that proportional representation is going to have a significant impact on the level of turnout. The, uh, the research evidence is that it tends to be about 2 or 3% higher amongst in, in societies with proportional representation. But the idea that votes count therefore drives people to the polling station, no. What, what drives people to the polling station is a belief that the issues that are confronting a society that are either manifestly or implicitly on the ballot paper are ones that matter and therefore engage them. I mean, there is a wider point to make about trust in politics. There, there is a, a study that was done by the polling group Ipsos Mori, um, which was ranking 20 different professions across, I think, 20 countries. Um, and, you know, how, how, does the public trust judges, teachers, doctors, whatever? And, and it's a fairly predictable pattern that emerges. And in every single country, without exception, politicians came at the bottom. Yeah. And professors are towards the top, yeah? yeah professors <laughs> at the top and, and ju judges. <laughs> judges are fairly high up too. Um, and, and that raises, I think, quite an important point about the nature of politics which is nothing, nothing to do with you know, particular systems we're talking about today, but it, it, it's almost everywhere there is a distrust of politics and politicians as a way of doing things. So why is that? Um, and and I, I guess I think it has to do with the, the messiness of compromise, because you know, democratic politics is about people coming to conclusions which don't involve the use of violence. And you're necessarily making trade-offs. You're having to betray your principles to get an agreement. And that is a messy process, and people don't like it because you've, you've promised more than you can deliver. Um, but So the issue of trust, I think, is a much, much bigger and deeper issue than yeah, uh, the, the more technical issues we're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think that the... Um, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I would agree with all of that because... Um, You've got 
um, uh, systems in place uh, under which uh, people reject compromise at the moment in this country. That isn't a universal phenomenon. Of course, it's very pronounced in this country at the moment and also in the United States, and I think as well in France. But if you take countries where coalitions are regarded as a matter of routine, like Germany, uh, people do not say that because a compromise between, say, three parties to constitute a majority involves some of them shedding their sacred cows, uh, the whole system is discredited. I think it's basically a question of historical culture. We have not had a great deal of experience in this country of coalition governments, uh, and we still need to get used to them. I thought one of the most significant features uh, of our one e recent experience of coalition governments, which is the one in which you were a minister, uh, is the way in which uh, the Liberal Party, Lib Dems, lost support essentially because they compromised particularly on the question of edu educational yeah. fees. Yeah, now, that seemed to me to be an example uh, of staggering naivety. The suggestion that the smallest of party in the coalition should not have compromised its manifesto in any way, even though they had not got a majority. And we're just going to have to grow out of that because as long as we stick to that, we are never going to get anything approaching consensus politics, and we're not going to achieve anything like trust in government. Uh, and I think we will, because if we get a culture which accepts coalitions uh, as part of the norm, which is true of plenty of countries in Europe, I think that sooner or later people will get used to that idea and will realise that in politics, as in life, you can't have everything. Um, next question, please. We'll go to the gentleman in the red jumper. Thank you. Uh, on the topic of majoritarian systems versus something more proportionally representative, uh, so Vince, so, so Vince uh, talked about how, in how appallingly bad the House of Commons is in their job of legislation, uh, primarily because of the partisan politics and the representative politics involved. Uh, if the UK moves towards something closer to PR or away from majoritarianism, would that hurt the cause of making the House of Commons better at what they do? Sorry, could you just repeat the last bit again for me? Uh, so if the UK moves away from majoritarianism to something more proportionally representative, would it hurt the cause of improving the House of Commons at their job of legislation and make it more partisan politically? I think the House of Commons is going to be less partisan if we have proportional representation or more partisan? Well, you'll have a greater variety of opinions. It will not be quite so partisan as between black and white uh, in political terms. I mean, the most partisan politics in the democratic world is now in the United States, which has been produced in an uncompromisingly two-party system. Um, so that, I think the greater variety, clearly if you have a, a chamber that under a proportional system would almost certainly have UKIP and a kind of right-wing populist to uh, use a bit of shorthand on one hand and semi-communists or hardline socialists on the other uh, would have some pretty vigorous ideological differences. But um, that doesn't mean to say that 
that you couldn't get people working together, particularly in the middle, or why people on the two extremes should not be able to debate uh, in a civilised way. I mean, a country like Sweden has communists in parliament <coughs> and populist right-wing Democrats, perfectly stable, well-run, consensual country. I mean, the Dutch have a, you know, a similar spectrum, a little bit more acrimonious on the right. So, yeah, a, a, a greater plurality doesn't necessarily uh, make for less consensual policies. It should make it easier. Yeah, the difficulty, of course, is if, if, you have a, if you find yourself in a situation where you've got a block of people on the right who are not coalitionable and another block of people on the left who are not coalitionable and the centre gets forced to compromise and govern... Um, the, diff the potential risk, of course, is that actually then in the end, in the longer term, it fuels the two extremes. Um, and so that, that, that would yeah, only happen if there was really quite significant bodies on the left. Sure, yeah, and, and, and that's, that, that's an unknown, absolutely. Yeah. Well, that's yeah. the, French, sure. the French dilemma. Yeah, yeah. sure, exactly, yeah. Anything to add on that, Lord Thompson, or should we go to the next, next question? Next question? We'll go to Mr Collins at the back. Um, so it may interest the panellists to know that uh, 2023 Sorry, is... can you speak into the microphone? Sorry. Sorry, there's um, a bunch of oldies here, I mean, you're not always yeah. here. So 2023 is not only 200 years since the Oxford Union was founded, it's 100 years since we adopted STV in our elections, so we're progressive and forward-thinking as, as ever. Um, but my question is that um, Sir Vince noted correctly that his party is very underrepresented in the House of Commons. Uh, but in the House of Lords, of course, the Liberal Democrats have almost half as many seats as the Labour Party do, despite receiving at the last election only about a third as many votes. So does the panel agree with me that one of the principal advantages of moving to a proportionally elected House of Lords uh, would be to bring about within that chamber a much-needed decline in the relative power and influence of his party? Um, I was asking, basically, with the Lib Dems being massively overrepresented in the House of Lords, would an elected House of Lords, particularly one that has proportional representation, not help balance the um, majoritarian House yes, of Commons, uh, but also yeah. weaken the Lib Dems? Yes, well, our, our House of Lords group is steadily dying off. <laughs> and it, it, it is now, I think, probably more accurately represents the actually, support in the country. Actually, I think you... I mean, I've got the figures here. I happened to look it up before we came here. Um, the Liberal Democrat members of the House of Lords, 83 out of 778, which my maths tells me is roughly around the 12% that the Liberal Democrats got at the last UK general election. So actually it's not that far off. Of course, one of the things we've not mentioned all evening is that once the hereditary peers uh, were taken out in 19... or mostly taken out uh, 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 by Tony Blair, uh, no party has a majority inside the House of Commons. Even the Conservatives only have House around... A in the House of Lords, sorry. Uh, only around a third of the House of Lords consists of uh, uh, Conservative uh, representatives and the crossbenchers are the second biggest group. So, I mean, again, that almost undoubtedly helps to ensure that the institution does operate on a much less partisan basis. And I think, yeah, again, if we were to elect any member of the House of Lords, it is pretty clear it ought to be by some system of proportional representation. I mean, the, um, there are two big differences between the Lords and the Commons on, on this point. 
Uh, one is that the crossbenchers, although theoretically the second largest group, are actually the largest group among those who attend regularly. Right. One of the mitigating factors to the appalling system of appointment uh, is that the stooges and donors that prime ministers have a taste for appointing uh, tend not to turn up very often. Um, uh, and so the actual effective size of the House of Lords is much smaller than its theoretical size of some 850 people. And in that group, the crossbenchers, who are very regular attenders indeed, tend to have a, a very considerable influence. The other big difference in the case of the House of Lords is that it has a long-standing culture of cooperation across party lines uh, and it therefore operates in a way in which the uh, acrimonious features of party politics are a great deal less important there than they are in the other place. Final question. We'll head to the member just in the front row here. Gentlemen, uh, thank you for your um, spirited discussion this evening. I came here as an unreconstructed proportional representationist. And I'm, well, not, I'm, sure that, I'm not sure that I still am one. And actually the discussion about the Constitution and where would you start in writing it, actually I think perhaps, and I would be interested in your thoughts, it is the lack of the moral compass that has been not written down that's actually caused us to have all the discontent we have had with our political guidance. So what do you mean by lack of moral compass? Um, there's been a lot of bad dude stuff happening recently. In, oh, I see. And that's sure. I mean, look, at the end of, you know, I mean, part of, you know, certainly if you read the Labour Party's document, it's very clear. Um, Shall we say, um, without getting too partisan, that we've recently had a style of government that has been pretty robust with regard to procedure. Um, in particular, we've had a Prime Minister whose strength was a very clear focus on outcome, but the price was perhaps not always taking what we might regard as due regard to process, but not just, as it were, the letter of the law but also this spirit of constitutional practice. And that's just a particular style of a particular person. We'll wait and see whether or not that's in any way permanent or whether that's just simply the style of a particular person. But yeah, at the end of the day, you know, apart from relying on politicians to guide a society to avoid violent conflict, which above all is their crucial function, we, in, in doing that, we also need them in a sense um, to follow some agreed rules of the game, uh, rules of the game which at the end of the day means that there are always constraints on what they can do, even those who may even be Prime Minister. Lord Sumption, as I think there's an interesting well, legal I, mean, I, I think that what, what you are talking about is not that far from what I was talking about when I was talking about a shared political culture. That won't, that won't achieve everything, but it's a, the essential lubricant of any political system so it can achieve quite a lot. But does a uncodified constitution not rely to some extent at some point on a degree of good chat politics? All constitutions rely on that um, without exception. Uh, there's a uh, our own system which is as far from being codified as it's possible to be uh, itself relies on 
uh, on unwritten conventions. It relies on a shared view that the system should be allowed to work properly and that that is much more important. The way you make decisions is much more important than any particular decision that you might make. And that's an absolutely critical feature of any democracy, regardless of what sort of constitution And that is arguably the convention that, shall we say, has been somewhat ignored in the relatively recent past. Yes. To finish that, this conversation off, Sir Vince, from your time in Parliament... Well, I would just say, it's, on, on matters of electoral systems, it's probably best not to be unreconstructed, because, as we, I think, have elucidated, the issues are complex and good people can agree to disagree on how we do it. Um, I think the, the, one of the comments which stood out for me, which Lord Sumption made, is the, the underlying importance of political culture and the fact that the two systems in the democratic world that are currently working worst is one is the mother of all parliaments and the other is the leading, leading country in the Western world. I mean, these have both seriously dysfunctional systems and that reflects something, I think, deeper than just the mechanics of how we carry out elections. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm afraid that's all we have time for. Before I ask you to thank our panellists, I think this is an ideal audience to pitch that next Monday we have uh, the Right Honourable the Lord Neuberger, former President of the Supreme Court, joining us. Uh, I hope that many of us will join you there. We'll try and put the heating on the chamber earlier <laughs> next week. Um, but Cost of living crisis hits the Oxford <laughs> Union. This is the evening's yeah. diary, but, I think. Please join me in thanking our panellists this evening. <laughs>